Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's such a blessing to be with you and to teach God's Word. And uh, what, what a great Word God has for us today. We'll be in Luke chapter 23. Just a quick announcement. We do have the roster out in the foyer if you want to take a look at that and uh, fill it in if needed. Um, and thanks to all of you who have signed up and uh, are serving in various ministries here, and such a blessing to be part of the body of Jesus Christ, and to be used by Him to serve one another, and to love one another as He's called us. So, uh, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Your Word. Thank you for this time to gather, and though um, it's a little different with masks being required, we pray that it wouldn't be a distraction from us drawing near to you, that nothing would hinder us from speaking forth your truth and glorifying your holy name, and thank you for all that you've provided for us, that we can come to you in everything giving thanks, because that's the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us, and so we, we bow down before you, Lord. We do worship you, and we extol your holy name, and thank you again for calling us for Jesus for the family that we are in Him, and for the work you've called us to do. Thank you that it's your Spirit who empowers us to do it, and you will accomplish it, and we can glory in you always. In Jesus' name, amen. God is a redeemer. That's one of the great qualities of our God, that um, we have such consolation in the midst of trials. We can have comfort in the difficulty, knowing that God will accomplish the good He intends. Joseph came to this conclusion. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, and what they meant for evil, he looked back in his life and he says, what you meant for evil, brothers who sold me into slavery, God meant for good. So they hate, his brothers hated Joseph. They were envious of the favor he had from their father, so they sold him into slavery. And, and after Jacob died, they imagined that he resented what they had done to him and expected him to take revenge. And so they begged. They said, oh, dad said before he died, don't do anything bad to your brothers. And it brought him to tears. And uh, it says in Genesis 50, verse 19 and 20, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. They meant evil, God meant for good. They wanted to, they thought he would use his power to destroy them, but Joseph recognized that God wanted to save. He wasn't going to destroy. In Joseph's case, not an isolated incident. We have countless times in the scriptures that the wicked schemes and intentions of men are overruled by the redemptive power of our God. Now, when someone does something to you and you know they mean it, like they mean it to be bad, that hurts right? When their intention is bad, it, it seems to just, it, it hurts even more. But the glorious thing about our God is what's intended for bad by Satan, by other people, God can still do good. Like he's not hindered at all by their plans or schemes because God's sovereign. He's gracious. He's good. Paul, he's imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. He realized that being in chains was being used by God to bring more people to faith, to increase the boldness of other Christians. Uh, the ultimate example of God's will prevailing over the evil intentions of men is in Christ Jesus. 
He was rejected, he was condemned, he was crucified, but that achieved the will of God to save sinners. That's what Jesus came to do. So it didn't hinder Jesus' purpose. It actually led to it being fulfilled. The power of God to redeem evil, it shouldn't ever be used as a justification to sin or to encourage it, nor should it sap our compassion when other people suffer. Like they're suffering, you go, oh, well, God's going to use it for good, so get over it. That's not the attitude we should have towards suffering. Um, yes, suffering is awful. Pain is terrible. But God can redeem even what's terrible and what's intended for evil. He can use it for good. We can know with, with total confidence that when we say, not my will, but your will be done, God will do what is right and good regardless of the evil in the world or what it was intended by evil to bring. What confidence we have in our Savior. Okay, starting in Luke 23, verse 1. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, we, have, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, arrested and accused of blasphemy by the chief priests and scribes. He has taken, was taken to Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor of Judea, who was in Jerusalem at that time. And he was there at the feast to keep the peace. It's kind of a high-profile moment. Uh, there had been no shortage of uh, conflicts between the Romans and Jewish people. And so we read one of them in Luke 13.1, that Galileans, they were executed by Pilate. So there was no love lost between Pilate and the Jews. And it was a, it was a very delicate balancing act to keep the peace. And they, they brought Jesus before Pilate. They falsely accused him of many things. None of them had anything to do with blasphemy, which is what they had convicted him of, because they knew that Pilate cared little for the religion, religious laws of the Jews. They trotted out some accusations that he had perverted the nation. He forbade the paying of taxes. And they twisted his words. He never said, don't pay taxes. He said, render to Caesar what Caesar, and to God what is God's. He admitted he was the Christ, not to say he was undermining or intended to overthrow Roman government, but that his kingdom was not of this world. And so the part truths, they distorted into a lie to accuse Christ. And the scene really doesn't play out how we'd expect at all. If you can put yourself in Jesus' spot, where you were brought before a ruler who had power over life and your life or death, you've been falsely accused of crimes of a very serious uh, level with, without evidence, and yet Jesus doesn't utter a word. He doesn't interrupt them. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't even oppose them. He just stands there. He doesn't explain or defend himself. In the face of injustice and baseless accusations, Jesus, he had already committed himself to God. He had already entrusted his future, knowing where it was leading, to the cross, and what God was going to accomplish through it. It's like Jesus is standing before the council and the governor as the judge with all authority. He doesn't stand there as a man being judged. He really stands there as the judge. They were the ones on trial. Would they receive him? Would they trust in him? Or would they reject him and condemn him? 
Jesus was really the only one who understood the gravity of the situation. And I want to have that kind of faith in God to demonstrate that rest and comfort in the will of God, knowing that even though it could be a painful road and a cross looming before him, he committed himself to he who judges righteously, to know and do God's will. That's what Jesus did. Continuing in verse 3, Then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him and said, It is as you say. So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he certainly did not look like a king at that time. He was beaten up. He was disheveled. I doubt he slept at all that night. There was no subject or supporter to be seen. And it gave Pilate pause to think the Jews would bring one of their own to him for judgment. Could you please turn to John chapter 18 to verse 33 where we see a more detailed conversation that took place between Jesus and Pilate. The Jews were a group of folks who stuck together. They were loyal to one another. And for them to bring a a famous person, a renowned person within Israel before him to accuse him of such severe crimes, wanting the death penalty, he definitely was curious about what is going on here. And he inquired in John 18, verse 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Jesus had done nothing to incite rebellion, to overthrow Roman rule. There was no evidence supplied to support this whatsoever. And he asks him if he was king of the Jews based upon the charge the Jews had brought against him. And that would be a strange thing because the Jews didn't have a throne at that time. They didn't have anyone to ordain as king, to uh, anoint as king. And Pilate assumed Jesus must have done something really bad for the Jewish leaders to commit him to him in judgment. And he says, what have you done? And Jesus answers that question with, my kingdom is not from here. It's a strange turn. Like Jesus is on a total different level than Pilate is in this conversation. Jesus' kingdom was not like the Babylonian kingdom or the Greeks or the Romans that had a capital city with armed soldiers, treasury, or trade. There was no palace to defend, no no borders to fortify. His kingdom, God's kingdom, 
was not of this world. It transcended all geography, all time, where God sits on the throne always. Jesus agreed he was a king before Bethlehem, before he came into this world. And I like that. See, he existed before the world. He came into it. I was nowhere before this world. I was conceived in my, my mother and I was born, but he came into it already having been because he is the word who became flesh. He is the eternal God. And he came into the world, he says, to bear witness to the truth. He says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. It's like Pilate could listen to Jesus, but he couldn't hear him. He couldn't comprehend him. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without faith in Jesus, Pontius Pilate was in the dark. He couldn't comprehend what he was hearing or what he was seeing. And it's not until we plug Jesus into that divine equation as the Son of God and the promised Messiah that the things he's saying begin to make sense. We live in a world that's called a post-truth world. Have you heard that statement before? Post-truth. It's defined as relating to a situation in which people are more likely to accept an argument based on their emotions and beliefs rather than one based on facts. So we can have a subjective view of the world according to our worldview or philosophy. It's like I see a tree and I see it as an organism that reproduces according to its kind as God created it to. Someone else views the same tree as a product of evolution and natural selection over billions of years. Right? It's a very different worldview, same tree. One person derives their moral uprightness, what they call as moral and ethical from the scriptures. Someone else, based upon what they feel is equitable. Pilate wasn't convinced that truth could be found. He didn't think it was just a, a stable thing that you could lay hold of. But yet Jesus is standing before him, the one who said, I am the truth. Jesus is the truth and will always be. And he says, everyone who is of the truth will hear my voice. Listening and hearing are two different things. I can listen to people speaking in a foreign language that I don't understand, and I can't tell you where one word starts and one word stops. It just kind of all rolls together. Like if someone said something very quickly in a foreign language, said, write that down. I would be like, uh, I can kind of get some vowels and maybe a few consonants, but I don't know what's being said. I don't have any meaning to it. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ as the truth, the things that God has said in his word begin to make sense to us because we're divinely enabled to hear and understand through the Holy Spirit. And after examining Jesus, Pilate could find no fault in him. And this provoked the Jews even further. They said, well, he's been stirring up people from Galilee to here. And Pilate's like, Galilee? Oh, so he's from Galilee. Okay, that's Herod's jurisdiction. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus, and he, didn't, he said, I find no fault in him, but the people weren't taking that as an answer. And so he sent Jesus to Herod to be examined by him because he was also in Jerusalem during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is Herod Antipas. It's the son of Herod the Great who sought to destroy Jesus after his birth. This is the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. That's who Jesus goes to here in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 8. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. 
Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. Then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, for previously they had been at enmity with each other. Herod was excited to meet Jesus. He had heard many things about him, and hey, he'd love to see a miracle. Um, And he had heard of him over the course of many years. He wanted to be dazzled. He wanted, like, impress me, entertain me with some supernatural power. There's no mention Herod was annoyed that Jesus had previously called him a fox in Luke 13, 32. He wasn't concerned about allegations, about stirring up the people, or he wasn't troubled that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. It says he just questioned him with many words. He just kept asking him questions. He's dictating the terms, and Jesus doesn't say anything. All the while, Jesus is being vehemently attacked by the scribes and Pharisees who are accusing him of many things. And since Jesus would not entertain him with tricks like a magician or answer his questions, he and his men mocked Jesus. It's like the truth of what they really felt came out. And they mocked him and they put a a gorgeous robe on him. Uh, It would be likely a white robe, which was what royalty would have worn in the Jewish culture. He didn't, Jesus didn't come to do miracles to impress skeptics. He came to save all who humbly seek him in faith. Do you find it interesting that Jesus could have answered any question that he was asked? He could have done any miracle that he wanted at that time. But he didn't. Remember, Herod lived, he lived in Herod's jurisdiction. Herod had heard for a long time about Jesus. At any time, he could have heard him preach. He could have traveled to see him do wonders. He could have seen him minister among the people. And he could have, as he's in his palace, saying, you know, I keep hearing about this Jesus. Let me go to him. But he never did. He was glad, though, when Jesus conveniently was brought to him. Because he's like, oh, now is my opportunity. I can see a miracle. I can see a sign that I've heard about. This miracle worker. He was unwilling to seek or to follow Jesus, but he was fine to have Jesus come to him to appease his curiosity. I like what Matthew Henry said. He wrote, The poorest beggar that asked for a miracle for the relief of his necessity was never denied, but this proud prince is denied. Miracles must not be made cheap, nor omnipotence be at the beck of the greatest potentate. This fault of reducing Jesus to just a miracle worker, it's the same mistake we can make in just attending church, giving, or in spiritual disciplines. Herod wanted something from Jesus without first seeking or trusting him as God. That's a key point. And that's why Jesus would not be moved by his requests or his desires to see a miracle, and thus disappointed. He wanted something from Jesus. He wanted to be entertained before he would acknowledge Jesus as worthy of honor. And we see that he did not give Jesus honor because the way he treated him when his expectations were not met. And as Christians, we can have expectations that God should do something or prevent something. And when our expectations are denied, we can be like Herod. 
and just feel, be really disillusioned about things. But Herod, he's dictating his terms to God, to Jesus, instead of silently listening for the Son of God to speak. It's really easy to ask questions, but are we willing to wait on the Lord when he's not answering right away, when we think he should? He saw Jesus like as a boring waste of time. Some people think that about coming to church, right? Meeting with other believers. His expectations were unmet, but Jesus would not be the tool of skeptics, mockers, or those filled with contempt, though they be rich or powerful. And I want to balance this point, though, by saying God graciously reveals himself with miraculous wonders to people who have never sought him. I don't want to say like, well, Jesus isn't revealing himself to you because you're not doing enough. You're not going to where you need to go or something. Remember Samuel, he had been dedicated as a child, was working at the temple. He's with priests who don't follow God, and God spoke to him miraculously, revealed, like spoke audibly to him and gave him something to say. Gideon, he's threshing grain in a wine press, and an angelic messenger comes to him and says, you're a mighty man of valor. So this revelation came from God to people who were not seeking God. So God is gracious. Shepherds, they're watching their flocks by night, and God reveals through angels that the Son of God has been born in Bethlehem. The Bible teaches, though, when we ask in faith, we will receive, coupled with if we, we sometimes have not because we ask not. So there, there, is, there is asking for us to do. Herod, he asked for a miracle, but he asked amiss. He had sinful intent. His requests were not supported by faith, and that's critical to our walk. James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. God answers our request not because we earn the right or because we use the right keywords when we pray, but because he's good. God is gracious. Having faith in God doesn't make us deserving. It means we understand we need him, and we're desperate for him. After mocking Jesus, Herod sent him back to Pilate. Verse 12, it says they had previously been uh, at enmity, or they had been in conflict, but this resolved that, and they became friends over the incident. Continuing in Luke 23, 13. Then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent him back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him. For it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city, and for murder, 
Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them. But they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate called together Christ's accusers. He said, I've, I've examined him. I have found no crime of the things you're accusing him. And I've, I've uh, examined him in your presence. And I sent him to Herod as well. He found no fault in him. He's not guilty of treason or perverting the people. And so he offered a compromise. He said, I'm going to scourge Jesus and release him. And he hoped that severe punishment would pacify those who demanded his blood while preserving Jesus' life. So it'll make them happy that he's being punished and an example is being made. But since he is an innocent man, I mean, that is a terrible compromise, right? He's innocent. He should be let go. But we'll punish him first, make you happy, but then we'll let him go because he doesn't deserve death. All four Gospels mention the practice of releasing of a prisoner during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and surely Jesus would be the most likely to be released. He was famous among the people. He was held in high regard and esteem. He was popular, but the people would not have it. Those who gathered, they, they shouted the lines, fed them by the chief priests and scribes, away with this man, give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a notable criminal, a rebellion in the city for murder. There was no question that he was guilty of of something and probably many things. And this was a total shock to Pilate. Pilate tries dodging responsibility by sending Jesus to Herod. He, he tried placating the people with compromise. He tried to reason with them, but the people would not have it and just shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And that's, that's going like right to the ultimate payment because crucifixion was the most brutal form of uh, torture slash execution that was employed by the Romans. So they're not just saying, teach him a lesson. They're wanting his blood. They want him to die an agonizing death. I was a bit surprised as I was studying the passage. I, I felt a bit sorry for Pilate because of the situation he was in. I, I, I can identify with him because he's futilely trying to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Have you ever had that situation where you're trying to please people, but you can't please them? Pilate, of course, does not deserve sympathy because he refused to take a stand for a righteous man. Jesus, the Savior of the world, he was a man-pleaser who in the moment did not consider God. He wasn't looking to God in faith. But I think we can all identify with this position where you feel pressure to yield to the will of others and you lack the strength or the wisdom or the boldness to resist the tide on your own. You're not willing to pay that price. If you think about the groups here, you have the envious Jew Jewish rulers who accused him, Pilate who tries to dodge his responsibility to trust him, Herod who mocked him, Barabbas, who was a rebellious murderer, it's all a picture of the doomed humanity that Jesus came to save. It's like all here. Jesus came to save these people, people like them, sinners who are lost and heading to destruction. The self-righteous Jewish leaders wanted to be God. Pilate wanted nothing to do with God. Herod mocked God, and Barabbas rebelled and was disobedient to God. It's like all Jews and Gentiles can comfortably fit into these four groups or across all of them. 
The sinners, they're screaming at each other while Jesus, the Lamb of God, stands silently, patiently waiting, trusting. Luke 23, verse 22. Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And the voices of these men and of the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for murder, rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Pilate reaffirmed his plan. I'm just going to punish him and let him go. Though he's innocent of wrongdoing. It's ironic. We see the Roman governor really fighting for the life of Jesus. The third time he's like, guys, no, he's innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. And that the Jews are crying out for his blood. In Pilate's eyes, the life of one just person was acceptable to stop a riot. Matthew 27, 24 puts it this way. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. One of the reasons Pilate was in Jerusalem at that time was to ensure law and, law and order in this rowdy gathering. It uh, put his hopes for a peaceful and uneventful feast in jeopardy. And he felt, I have no other choice but to cave to the demands of the people. Ritual hand washing, that was something that was common among the Jews. And so Pilate does so to show his innocence that he judged him or condemned him only because it had been requested by the people, because they demanded it. Interestingly, it's required in Judaism to have your hands washed before a meal when bread is served. And Jesus is the living bread that came down from heaven, right? Priests, they were required to wash their hands before offering a sacrifice on the altar. And Jesus is the Lamb of God without blemish and spot that he's God sent to save sinners. This was a symbolic gesture. Of course, his washing of his hands could not purify Pilate's heart. The guilt of the blood of Jesus was upon both Jew and Gentile for the murder of Christ. That same blood, though, it would provide atonement, forgiveness, and salvation for all who trust in him. It says that Pilate did as the people demanded. He committed Jesus to be scourged uh, and crucified, and he released the rebel Barabbas. The people didn't love Barabbas. They just wanted to be done with Jesus. They hated and rejected him. Luke 23, 25, this just stood out to me so much. It says, he delivered Jesus to their will. The murderous intent and will of the people prevailed that day. The will of God prevailed over it. We often think for God's will to be done, the will of man must be stopped. We say, oh, that, that has to stop and this has to stop. But God allowed it to continue and his will was still done. That's how awesome our God is at redeeming tragedy and evil for good. On the day when the greatest evil prevailed... 
the greatest good was accomplished. God's plans were unhindered by the evil will of man. Jesus said this after his triumphant entry into Jerusalem in John 12, verse 31 through 33. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Jesus isn't just celebrating the moment of of the triumphant entry and really relishing the praises of the people. He's looking ahead to the cross, his crucifixion, and being lifted up, drawing all people to himself. He would not be cast down headlong. He would not be stoned. He would not be beheaded because a bone could not be broken. He would be lifted up. He would be crucified. Man wanted Jesus to be lifted up and pierced. And they wanted nothing to do with him. But God would make him the way of salvation, the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, Peter said in Acts 2.23 that the crucifixion of Jesus was by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. So God had a purpose in what he allowed and his resurrection. Man's will was to kill Jesus. God's will was to give eternal life. I'm just blown away by how awesome God is to, to redeem and to save and to make salvation possible by his grace, by his cost. Please turn to John chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and it dovetails really well with being lifted up and drawing all people to himself. And may we be those who lift him up in our conduct, in our speech, in our faith. John three thirteen. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus brought up with Nicodemus a historical event written about in Numbers 21. The children of Israel had murmured against God in the wilderness after he brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and God sent these venomous snakes in among the people. They bit the people, and the people began to die. They came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Uh, and Moses prayed to God, and God directed him to, take a to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up in the camp, and anyone that looked upon it would be healed of their snake bite. So they could have been bitten, but they would live. So it was a miracle that was done. When Jesus was lifted up on a cross, God promised all stricken with sin that brings death could trust in him and receive everlasting life. It's like, it, uh, uh, let's see, hmm. I'm not going to go there. Um, I need to think about that some more. Those who crucified Jesus could look upon him in faith and receive forgiveness and salvation and eternal life by his grace. God, he, he satisfied his justice by Jesus dying as a substitute for sinners. 
and he offers life to all who trust in him. Paul wrote this in Galatians 1, 3, and 5. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And sometimes we think that the only victory can come is when we're gone, like when we're away from this evil place. But God, he is able to overturn the evil schemes of wicked men because it's the will of God. He is doing good. He has awesome plans. He delivers us from our sins. He has glory forever and ever, now and forever. God's will for us doesn't stop with just being born again and being forgiven of our sins or receiving salvation. Our call is to do God's will today, to know God's will and to do it. And we can by His grace. Please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. And this is just a little bit of a longer list that for time I had to pare down. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 14. It is awesome to know that the evils of this world, the schemes of Satan, the wicked intent of man cannot undermine God's will for you and me. What confidence we can have in him. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, Comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Instead of being cast down, we can stand strong in faith. Free from worry, we can patiently rest in God's goodness. Without fear of man, we can rejoice, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything. As I read it this time, it just stood out to me so much, in everything. He doesn't say, for everything, give thanks. Jesus did not thank God for the cruelty or the brutality of man, but he was thankful for what would be accomplished. So in everything, in everything we face, in everything we experience, and we have, we've had opportunities where masks are now mandated today. Very little thing compared to crucifixion. But it's still a big impact, isn't it? Where it's like, I have to do this if I want to follow the law. And something that's so small can distract us. It can put some bitterness or resentment within us. And we feel like this is unnecessary. Why do I have to deal with this? This is too much. This is, this is too much, this is an overreach. But in everything, we can give thanks, mask or not, for the glory of God. Because in everything we experience, God is worthy of being sought. He is worthy of being trusted. He is worthy of all praise and honor because he's good and his mercy endures forever. So in everything, give thanks. In every season of life, in every year, 2020 was a great year because God gave us every one of their day, those days. It says, uh, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. If one of those days is good and we should rejoice and be glad in it, we can rejoice in the whole year. And we rejoice in the year God's placed before us without going, oh no, what's going what's gonna to happen now? 
and be worried and afraid and concerned about what the future holds. We know God who holds us and knows us, and his will shall be done. He is good. Our practice on the first Sunday of each month is to observe communion together, to remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for sinners. So it's really a a neat time that it's come up with Jesus soon to be crucified in Luke. When Jesus was lifted up, it attracted the attention of many people. And they came to him probably with different motives. Some were just curious, what's going on? It's like in the schoolyard where people yell, fight, fight. And you're like, well, who's fighting? And you just want to see what's going on. When there was an execution, it was a public thing. People would come and and yell out, hey, something's going on over here. And people would come. There were some who were just following orders. There were the Roman soldiers that they're told, this is... This is the judgment been handed down upon this person. Flog him, crucify him, doing a job. There's other people who hated Jesus, and they wanted to see him suffer. They wanted to mock and to ridicule him. And there were some that loved him. There were some who drew near to him because they saw him as their king dying on a cross, and they couldn't make sense of it. Some just wanted to be entertained. It was something happening that day. Why do you approach Jesus today? Why do you draw near to him? Out of obligation, curiosity, and the hope of entertainment, or because he loves you? May our following Christ and seeking him never be reduced to an occupation, a have-to, rather than he loves me. Let that drive us. Let that compel us. His love for you. Jesus went because he obeyed the will of his Father. And for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame. Three days later, he rose in glory. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he handed it to his disciples. That was a symbol of his body that would be broken for them. And then he gave them the cup. And he told them to drink of it, that it symbolized the new covenant in his blood. And that as often as they ate and drank, they were to proclaim his death till he comes. It's like Jesus told them to remember before it even happened, because it's like it had already happened. It had already been ordained by God. It had been planned from the beginning by God's foreknowledge, and it would be done. And this proclamation, it's not just for once a month. It's not just at church, but to be lived out every day as we walk and follow Jesus Christ in obedience to him. To us, that God has revealed his will, let's give thanks to him in everything, in the price he paid, and for the love that he's shown us. Could I please have the worship team come up? They will lead us in a song. And while they are singing, we will have the elements passed around, and then we will, once we've all received and the song is over, then I will lead us in a prayer. So if you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus, if you're born again, you are welcome to receive this. And uh, yeah, let's be those who follow Christ together. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and your truth, for your kindness to us all. Thank you for just the way you overrule the wickedness of man. 
that Jesus was delivered to their will, which was a murderous will. But your will was done. And your will to save lives, to bring salvation to sinners, to those who, who pulled out the beard and buffeted his face and who called out those terrible things to him and mocked and scorned him, Lord. And of we are those people. We are those who are undeserving of forgiveness, those deserving of death and hell forever, but you have died. You have given us Christ as a Savior, as one in whom we trust, one who cleanses us from our sin, one who gives us a new life to be lived with you. Thank you for the treasure we have in Christ and for his shed blood, his broken body. And we ask, Lord, that you be glorified in and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.